Hello and welcome to Disseminate, the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by George Constantinidis, who will be talking about his VLDB 22 paper, Enabling Personal Consent in Databases. George is an assistant professor at the University of Southampton, and he is also a Turing Fellow with the Alan Turing Institute in London. His research, his research interests are databases, data integration, data sharing and data knowledge graphs. Welcome to the show, George. Hi, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to, to be here. Thank pleasure you. to have you. So let's dive straight in. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how did you get interested in researching databases and obviously specifically the, the topic of the, of, the, uh, of the show today, personal consent? Yeah. So um, since after I graduated from, from my undergraduate bachelor's degree at the University of Crete in Greece, um, I started developing an interest in artificial intelligence and data management at the same time. And I did my, my first uh, master's there at the University of Crete and worked for a bit at the foundations of, uh, at the foundation of um, technology, uh, uh, research and technology, HELAS, that's called FORTH, the acronym. So, so during that time, um, I think I, I started shifting more towards databases uh, because I found it to be more principled. Mm-hmm. Back then, AI was um, was mostly working uh, uh, with a model with the model of let's find a problem and throw everything we have at it. Okay, right. Uh, it was not so principled uh, to my eyes. Um, then later, you know, with all of the deep learning and machine learning revolution, it became much more principled, uh, and 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 maybe to its not to its benefit. I, I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, but in addition to, to the more principled uh, field that I could see in databases, I, I, I liked more the conferences, the community. So gradually, I, I eventually, I, I found myself working in the, in, in the field of data management. Let's, let's get into the, the meat of, um, of, the, of, the, of the show today. So can you tell us what is collaborative privacy and it's a really important kind of topic in your papers can you give the listener an overview of kind of what it is yes sure so this was born with the idea i mean back in the around the time when gdpr was about to come out we started thinking about um, how could we um, support uh, uh, technologically support um, uh, this kind of of ideas of gdpr of protecting personal consent and personal privacy uh, in a in a machine processable way, so collaborative privacy is the technology that allows collaborative parties to automatically capture, update, and implement a data privacy contract. So, when you have data sharing between entities, they usually agree on several terms, and and um, they, the the uh, collaborative tr- privacy is there to to provide automation to that process of agreement and enforcement, implementation of, of those terms. Um, it's a new concept that we're trying to push and, and um, it's related to data privacy, but it's not exactly data privacy because in the collaborative privacy concept, you don't have an adversary. So the idea is that you are trying to enforce your, your privacy preferences 
in in coordination with with the service provider, not hiding something, not encrypting something against the service provider. Okay, because it's sort of like a different trust model there you have. Okay, so what's an example? So can you give there maybe give us an, a, an example of how someone in their day to day life would be involved in such an agreement? Like, what's a typical example? So you have typical examples from from from. I mean, it's everywhere in in all our interactions with services on the web today. So even on social media, you commit your data to a social media provider uh, and uh, you trust them. You have agreed with them on the use of your data using these terms and conditions documents, maybe doing some opt-in, opt-out choices, right? And then that's your contract. But you completely trust them with your data, right? Another very simple example is when you go to buy something from a... uh, e-commerce website and you put your your email address you don't encrypt it you don't secure it there right but you you trust the the website to use it for your agreed preferences right to use it use it according to your agreed preferences so use it to give, send you update emails about your purchase but not advertisement let's say so so that's that's on one end on the consumer end but you can go all the way to you know um, businesses Emerging their databases or uh, federated uh, learning of of different data sets uh, where you have privacy concerns between those data sets or when when you have a, a, a company buying another company and they want to to, to merge the, the data or in in several other data consortia let's say where you have a data sharing scenario you have these agreements that are put in place in order for some uh, preferences to be respected. It's, it's there that we, we envision uh, technology playing a major role in the future. So what are the problems with the current way that collaborative privacy is implemented? So I, I mean, I know the one thing from my experience is these terms and conditions. I mean, I very, very rarely read them, right? And I saw, I remember seeing this uh, art show once where someone had printed off basically all the terms and conditions from the popular social media companies at the time and they were so long like there's there's no way like a normal person would read i'm sure if you added them all up there'd be not enough years in your life to to read them all the amount you agree to these days but anyway yeah so So this is this is one aspect of the problem the fact that no one reads those terms and conditions they are very they are written in natural in legal language right they're hard to read and they are much more hard to enforce so um usually these terms are written in a top-down way so you don't put the terms in the contract, the service provider does, right? So they are top-down, they are imposed on you. Uh, usually they are an accept-all-or-nothing kind of uh, agreement. So you want to accept the terms, you get the service. You don't want to accept the terms, you don't get the service. There is no fine-grained saying for you in in, 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 the, in those terms, right? Um, so these terms are very coarse coarse grained. The only amount of automation that is that happens is, is very coarse grained. It's, it's predefined opt-in or opt-out options for a particular set of, of scenarios, right? Uh, at the same time, this is a problem for the service provider as well because they have to, they, 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 they do this agreement with you and then they have to hire an in-house engineer and, and tell them to implement into code whatever they have agreed with Jack or George or, or whoever. Right? That, and, and because these agreements 
are because this implementation is is ad hoc for 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 an agreement you cannot have a, a, these agreements a de, um, varying a lot between users right now because you have to to implement them so you have to implement a different agreement right so so the the idea is that if you do this some somehow automatically or semi automatically you could give more power to the user to have a say over their personal preferences uh, in a more bottom up way so the user will co-construct the contract which will be in a machine processable way of course to 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 go there it's it's not uh, immediate because you you have to have users that are data literate right or you have to have agents that act on behalf of users they have some defaults and they put some kind of constraints in the system in a machine processable form and then this is the contract right? and the contract gets automatically respected automatically uh, implemented so so this is the idea and 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 we have done some initial uh, work on this cool so i, I just to kind of i guess go jump back you mentioned it earlier on in that you kind of said how it's different from from data privacy but are there any techniques that exist in the sort of data privacy space that could be applied to help address this or is it just totally kind of not relevant or no, it's a very it's a very good question, and that's the first thing that we looked into. Okay, first we said that collaborative privacy is not substituting data privacy; it comes after. It's complementary, right? So data privacy comes before you encrypt, you secure whatever you want to protect. Then you have to commit some data, you have to give some data, but then you still have privacy preferences or concerns, right? So in that sense, it's not data privacy, but at the same time, we could look into particular data privacy techniques. There is, there is, for example, a technique that we started looking, we originated from looking into that technique, which is called controlled query evaluation, where you have a query to be executed against a, a database, but you want to do this in a controlled way, in a way that respects some, some, some kinds of, uh, some requirements uh, written down in a machine processable way or some specifications, some data privacy concerns. But this is very rigid in data privacy, right? You have you are afraid of of revealing too much information, so you are you are very very strict. In in our setting, you you trust the other party, so you can reveal more information. So so deep down, the the in the at the, at the first instance, the technology that we started developing is related to data privacy technologies, but from a different spin with with different semantics, if you will. Okay, cool. So I guess let's let's dig into your solution. So this is this is this is called consent constraints. Can you tell us what these are and how they work? So the, I I spoke about the vision that we have, right? But uh, as a first step, we we wanted to to start from somewhere and keep it simple. And we said, okay, let's start from from relational databases and see what can we do uh, in within relational databases. Um, how can we capture some kind of consent of 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 uh, preferences on the processing that can happen on the inside the relational database what kind of processing can happen what is the most common processing in relational databases it is query answering so okay let's try to encode some constraints that will impose some restrictions on query answering again looking into data privacy there has been some some um, there has been some uh, work that deals with what is called denial constraints. Denial constraints are queries, are negative queries, are queries that you don't want to be answered. 
So at first we imagined the setting where, where uh, by default, the user would allow queries to be answered unless they explicitly want some kind of join, some kind of projection or some kind of selection not taking place. In that case, they would write a negative query that uh, in the face of a, of a query from a service provider or some kind of processing from the service provider will affect how the service provider's query will, will get answered. So this is the idea. Again, it's not completely protecting against never finding out the answers of the negative query. It's more like explicitly protecting against, against certain operations happening on the data at the time of the, of the query answering, and then trusting the service provider that for a future query, they will go through the system again, rather than try, let's say, to, to infer something that they should do. Okay, so there when you said that it's not completely protected, that you can, it's, it's basically it's preventing specific operations happening, but you can, in some other roundabout way, deduce something that you would have necessarily kind of not yes. been concerned so, so the way they, classic data privacy works is, it, it is afraid of collusions. It is, it is afraid to answer query, query A and then query B in a, in a privacy compliant way. But then somehow through the answers of the query A and query B, the adversary can combine those answers and find something out which is not explicitly violated in query A or query B in isolation. In our setting, we don't, we don't, we're not afraid in some sense of this collusion happening. Unless something is explicitly violated, right, we, we return the answers. So we give more answers, essentially, to the service provider to, 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 play, to play with, to, to, at, at their disposal. Right? So, and we trust the service provider that when they want to do some combined processing, they again will go through the system and explicitly filter. And, and so they will not try to do collusion and, and obtain something that we don't want them to obtain. Again, this is not about protecting the, it's about enabling the service provider to do the most processing that they want to do in a consent-abiding way. Okay, brilliant. So you've obviously taken this, this idea then and we've you've designed an algorithm, a system that will allow a service provider to go and honour these consent constraints. Can you tell us more about how the algorithm actually works and how the system works, how, how that kind of was all Yeah, all sure. Done? So the, the, there are two algorithms. Initially, we, we had to try to find semantics for query answering. So so we wrote queries and constraints and on the blackboard and we, we, we scratched our heads and said, okay, what does this mean? What answers, what answers do I want here? Uh, and slowly we, we ended up in a, in, a, in a semantics definition which is based on, on provenance. So the idea is that in an imaginary world, you tag every tuple and every cell of your data with, you annotate it with some label and then the, both the consent constraints, these negative queries, and the service provider's query, they both uh, uh, get answered on these annotated databases. And then the answers carry with them some annotations, some, some, some provenance on the way uh, uh, that describes the way of how these answers got obtained, right? these answer tuples. So you do that both for... The, the query, the input query, and for your, let's say, consent contract. And you try to, to do some kind of difference there. So you, you give back to the query issuer only those answers that are not labeled with 
with let's say data that you don't want to be given back okay and but these labels are more complex than 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 traditional labels in the sense that um you can now annotate joints rather than just simple cells with with some mechanism that we have you can allow um let's say two tables in isolation to be given to the service provider but let's say um my disease table right or or the or the, the rows of the disease table that are that are that belong to me right but then when you join the disease table let's say with the insurance table it's then when you, i don't want my information to be used so i can describe things like that that was the first algorithm and that was mostly uh, to give theoretical foundation to the work and then uh, on, based on that algorithm we proved some complexity results we proved some formal connections to to data privacy and then we went on and we we devised the second algorithm which does not need to t- touch the data it's data agnostic in a sense so you have your consent contract and you have your input query and then what we do is query writing we rewrite the input query into a new query that no matter the database when executed will abide by the consent contract and and uh, of course this query depends on how large your consent contract is how many consent constraints you have it could, could it could be a very large query so so um it's not clear it's not a hundred percent clear that this is the best approach to go about although our experiments show so that this is this is a, a better approach than the provenance based mechanism yeah, I was going to say because the provenance-based mechanism sounds like it has quite it's quite invasive, right? It sounds like it has quite a potentially high cost on the kind of bloat in the storage layer, maybe if you're annotating everything. But yeah, I guess then the trade-off of the query writing is that there's a, there's a cost associated with that as well. Exactly, yeah. it depends how large your your query writing becomes. Yeah, there's a trade-off space there, I guess. Yeah. But um, and there is work there to still work there to investigate what is the what is the best approach for different scenarios. So we are currently in the process of that. Oh, amazing. So what were the what were the challenges you had to overcome in this sort of process of, of starting off with algorithm one and going on to algorithm two and then... Okay, so I, I would first I would like to point out one of the major challenges in this line of work is cultural, a cultural obstacle. Okay. So initially when, when we were um uh trying to publish this work, uh the comments that we were getting back is how how can you be sure that you will enforce the contract? Right. So there is, there is this still cultural change that needs to happen to understand that today we do give data to service providers with no me- mechanistic, no algorithmic guarantee of privacy enforcement, right? The privacy enforcement that you now uh, uh, it's all, it's th- that you now trust is all, all, all legal or extra algorithmic, right? So the first obstacle that we had to, of course, when something like this happens, you always come back and, and you say, I should have described the work better. I should have described the motivation better. But still, I see this when talking to people. I still, it's a, it's a, it's a hard-coded way of thinking that we have about pri- privacy that does not allow us to easily switch to this new model. Right? And we always go back to think, uh, how am I going to enforce this? How am I... How am I going to enforce that the service provider is not going to violate this? And the, the, the answer is you're doing that for the service provider as well because the, the problem starts with they don't want to violate your, your, your preferences. They have business incentives 
not to violate your preferences. You remember how much, let's say, a big social media companies changed policies after after certain scandals, like, like the Cambridge Analytical scandal. They have business incentives to do that. They have legal incentives to do that. So they and because they don't want to to they want to to they attract more customers, if you will, if they if they are more more transparent, right? So so they want to find this. They want to have this automated means to 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 not violate your your preferences, right? So this was the cultural challenge that we had. Of course, then we had technical challenges, right? So technical challenges is again it had to do with what does a, a consent constraint mean exactly? Uh, how do we encode this kind of joins? Why queries? This seems unnatural. Why? I mean, you have some privacy preferences. Can you encode all your privacy preferences? In queries, no, you cannot, right? Unless you have a table for anything, for purposes. You must have a table that describes purposes, right? Otherwise, you cannot. And by the way, previous data privacy work tried to do that by encoding all the language of, of, of purposes inside inside the database itself, right? So you cannot, but you have to start from somewhere. And, and we asked ourselves, okay, so let's start from selection, projection, and joins. These are the main operations that you want to talk about in your, in your contract, right? And the other challenge that we have is, okay, the average user is not really, is not really familiar with the uh, with uh, selection, projection, and joins to the extent that they can play with 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 them in uh, and write consent contracts. So there is more research to to happen there on the automation of these preferences. How do you go from from a friendly UI to these consent uh, constraints? And that's that's another challenge that we are still working on. And of course, other challenges is what other challenges for the particular paper was what to compare against because we don't have another approach which is similar. We have terms and conditions, or we have classic data privacy approach. So we did a mix of of uh, of uh, comparing against both, mostly against the the most relevant data privacy approaches. And the last challenge had to do with uh, obtaining data and to run our experiments because this is a new idea. There are, not, there are no consent constraints documented. How how you are going to do this? And again, we created data generators and, and consent generators, and we did the experiments on synthetic data, but we also obtained real data, anonymized data from clinical trials and, and from patients in ICU units and wrote some constraints of our own on top of this real data. Yes, we can maybe just dig into a little bit and how you actually took the the algorithms and whatnot and how you you know you implemented these in some framework can you maybe tell us more about the framework that you use to then evaluate your approach yes okay so first first with respect to the classic data privacy there are there is a a work a series of of works actually known as hippocratic databases and where the the ideas of the the privacy ideas that they had implemented there they were reminiscent of of what uh, what we were trying to do here so they had some opt in opt out choices but of course from a classic data privacy perspective the when when you opt it out from a particular to share a particular row you could not even use that in joints anywhere it was it was blanked out essentially right and in our case, we, we implemented an opt-in, opt-out approach using our consent constraints, which are much more powerful. But just to compare, we implemented, we use them only as uh, hiding uh, uh, projections. That is opt-ins or opt-outs, essentially, right? 
high, high projecting out uh, columns for from particular rows of, of your queries. But in our semantics, you can even still do, do joins uh, with hidden attributes as long as you don't want these attributes to be returned. So, so it more, returns more, more data. So when we compared, we compared how fast we are, but also how much more data we return against against this this other data privacy approach. So this this is this is the the connection in uh, in in uh, in uh, uh, the, the technical connection, let's say, to to this other approach that is out there. So the in terms of the framework, so the framework is a is a right now is a prototypical implementation, right? It gets in the input we have these consent constraints in some notation we use the data log notation uh, uh, to write rules and uh, we have implemented this in everything in java you get the input query in, in in sql and you get these constraints and then you create a sql rewriting in the output of your java program that is good for execution on top of your databases on your database and we executed that in in postgres in the Postgres database. So this framework right now, once you know what what you want to do with it, it's ready to to go. It's it's open source. The link is in our uh, uh, paper. The GitHub link is in our paper. But of course, you would need all the technology around that to use it right now. So you would need to go from the preferences to the actual consent constraints. Right? We are doing active research on that, and and you would need to encode that inside your 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 system somehow but the the the, the framework can can be run autonomously we mostly support the query writing approach the provenance based approach was mostly implemented for comparison and was not is not let's say production ready in some extent so we we do have that in the in the github as well but this it's probably more buggy than the query writing approach what was your approach to evaluating your framework and kind of the questions you were trying to answer mm -hmm. and how did that look like? The good thing with this technology is that, and with the vision that we have for this technology, and I can go into that more later, I mean, what comes in the future, but but the, the, the vision is that you can encode both personal constraints, so bottom-up, let's say, creating a contract of data sharing bottom-up, of data processing bottom-up, but also top-down. So you can encode also uh, institutional policies, right? So you can encode uh, things that talk about large portions of, of your data with these queries. Simply, you know, an atomic query that mentions stable employees simply, and let's say forbids the projection of the first attribute, uh, is, is talking about the entire set of your employees, right? So this is like an institutional policy. Do not do this at the institutional level. But um, this can you can also fix hard fix in your query your your personal ID and talk about so the so so this this negative query answers. So the way you talk about your data is through these negative queries will only be particular to your data that are that contain this particular ID because you you fixed it in the query. So you can go all the way from from institutional policies to personal constraints. And of course, a natural example and a natural sorry, question is, how do you perform? What is What can be supported? What are the limits here, right? Interestingly, we found out that personal consent constraints are easier supported to a bigger scale, right? We can, we can scale to thousands, uh, uh, tens of thousands of personal consent constraints 
uh, in our experiments uh, than scaling these large institutional policies, right? This, so interestingly, we found that um, a major factor that affects query performance here is how much data does your negative consent constraint touch? How much data does the negative consent constraint talk about? If it talks about a little bit of data, even if you have hundreds or thousands of them, so individual user policies, normally you would expect the data for an individual user within a, a database to be small, to be localized, right? So in that scenario, you perform fast. You, you go, essentially, there were cases where the consent abiding query execution um, uh, uh, was, was as fast as the, as the original query executed with no, with no consent enforced. So the consent overhead is not much. Worst case, we found that it is linear in our experiments. In theory, it could be worse because the problem we proved that is an NP-hard problem. So in theory, it could be worse. But in practical settings, in all our generated settings, in the ICU, the real data uh, that we used, the, the, the overhead of enforcing your, your privacy is kind of, of linear. When you go to global policies, this changes radically depending on what kind of policy you want to, to enforce. You have policies that, that are very complex and very, very, they slow down the query very much, right? And you have policies that are easier to enforce and they're not so, so complex. So regarding this interplay and how much bottom-up against top-down contract clauses or requirements you can enforce, we are still, we are still uh, looking at this and, and uh, investigating into this interplay. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the, ex the experimental setup? And you mentioned earlier on and how you got data from some ICU and, you know, I know you used their... Uh, TCPH as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about this, the experimental setup? So uh, for experiments, we used the TPCH ben benchmark, but of course this um, does not have, uh, uh, it comes with a set of queries and it, it comes with a, a different number of scales. You can scale from, from uh, a few rows in your tables until, uh, uh, until millions of, let's say, of uh, tuples in, in your tables. And we did all this range. Of, of data generation, uh, but of course we couldn't. We it doesn't come with constraints, with consent constraints. So we 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 looked at the queries that it comes with, and we try to change them to to make them uh, more like uh, to generate, let's say, more like constraints. One thing that we did is we looked back in this Hippocratic databases work that had to, that had policies and and data privacy policies. Uh, that had to do with patients. And we tried to mimic those constraints, which, again, they were hardcore, hard data, strict data privacy constraints, but still they were useful to us. We tried to mimic those constraints on top of our uh, TPCH benchmark, uh, which means if, if there was a constraint that, was taught, uh, that talked about a patient, we transformed it to a constraint that talks about a customer. So a customer does not want to share their address. Similarly to a patient does not want to share their um, disease or something like that. So this, is, this was a kind of inspiration that we took to create realistic constraints on top of the TPCH benchmark. Right? And then we created, um, using this, we created hundreds of constraints or thousands of constraints by simply talking about more and more customers. 
and then we created constraints, more complex constraints, by by joining them with the, the customer relation with with uh, orders relation and and putting some constraints on the orders, and so so we really drilled down into the TPCH benchmark uh, in a in a clever way. We didn't simply try to you know uh, brute force uh, create constraints that do not have any any mean, any sense. Similarly, we did with with the ICU dataset. Again, looking inside the dataset, we created constraints that had to do with. We found a way to automatically generate constraints because we we need large numbers of them that have to do with with uh, real concerns that one might have on the length of the stay in the ICU, on the on the particular treatment that they got while while they stayed there, on the disease, on the diagnosis, and and, and so on. So this was the setting, and we scaled. We scaled to different numbers of constraints. We scaled. We did experiments with constraints that touch a little bit of data, lots of data, uh, with uh, small databases, large databases. Awesome. So I guess what were the what were the key results then? So if you were to kind of summarize them and put some sort of numbers, I know you said before that the the smaller the uh, amount of data, the, the, the negative query touches, the the faster you are. But what are the other key results from your experiments? Yes. So other key results are. <clears throat> We compare on, on par or even faster than, than data privacy approaches uh, while giving back uh, on average 30% more uh, answers to the, to the service provider because, again, of this premise that the, the answers are not explicitly sensitive against the query and therefore we're not afraid to, to give those answers back right? uh, in contrast to data privacy approaches. Uh, the slowdown of the of the of the queries was uh, linear, as I said, and and we found out that uh, compared to to classic data privacy approaches like uh, control query evaluation, well, there is a version of our framework that can also be used as as that. So and we we did that both uh, theoretically by proving that, and and we found we, we did a, an experiment as well where we use our framework as um, strict data privacy, as a strict data privacy framework. So in that case, but this for for us, this can only happen with particular kinds of constraints. When you restrict yourself in, in, let's say, in what we call Boolean constraints, constraints that do not talk about projections, then the enforcement of these constraints will be privacy abiding as well, in, in some sense. Okay, cool. So, are there, are there any situations in when your approach is performance is is suboptimal? Kind of, I'm guessing I'm trying to get here. What are the limitations of of? Yeah, yeah. I think also uh, what I forgot to mention earlier that we did some some uh, ex- experiments with aggregation as well. But for this, there is much more research to be done because um, when when the a user, uh, the service provider queries have aggregation. What we did, we took it out of the query, we executed the query in a consent-abounded way, and we put it back. That's one semantics to go about it. But is it the correct one? Is it what you, you want? And more interesting is how do you evolve your, your consent language to contain aggregations? And this is not clear at all. We are currently looking into that. But we did some initial experiments with, with the disclaimer that the, the results might not be consistent because there is no developed semantics right now, but these are the numbers. This is how it would look. 
the limitations in the terms of experiments are those that I mentioned. In terms of, uh, of performance, the limitations are when you use constraints that touch lots of data, you don't scale as much. The slowdown is, becomes, becomes uh, uh, large. However, it depends on the application of uh, how much slowdown you can actually tolerate, right? Because if you're doing this on overnight, you might be able to, to do even large policies. If you're doing this every second, it's it, it's, a, it's it's a different story. So it depends on, on really the application, what are the actual limitations there. Uh, other limitations of the work in general are, again, the as I mentioned, are, again, um, how to uh, capture the user's preferences and, and make them into these consent constraints, and we are actively working on that. Uh, but the, the most, the, the, the major limitation, which is which I don't see as a limitation, but I see as an opportunity to to invest and 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 look into, is the is the consent language right now. The consent language, uh, yes, it's more expressive than than what you could do with opt-in opt-outs, and we also experimentally verified that uh, by giving back more answers. But it's still a language that has selections, projections, and joins. That's it. That's the queries that we can write, conjunctive queries, essentially, that we can write as constraints. Um, what happens when you extend this language and how you can extend this language? How do you talk about uh, purposes? Uh, how do you talk about other kinds of processing on top of relational data? The queries is not the only kind of processing that can happen, right? Learning, let's say, uh, analytics, other kind of processing that can happen of, on top of your data. So currently, you cannot do this with, uh, with our initial work. Uh, but um, this is one major direction for us for future research. Cool. So uh, you, you mentioned earlier on that the framework's available on GitHub. But how, how is a, maybe there's some ongoing work in this area. But how as a sort of service provider, can I, how easy would it be, I guess, is the question, to take what's there at the minute, even though it's in, its, in a kind of a yeah, I, production ready, and then integrate that into my sort of um, yes. workflow? Yes. Again, I know I know there are approaches in industry that, um, for example, I think um, Snowflake and Amazon have approaches that are called data clean rooms now that, that try to do some kind of data privacy enforcement of, of uh, in the face of, of, of queries and, and, and privacy preferences. They do some kind of cleaning of the query answer or, or, or something like that. I'm not sure what, what's happening, but I, I know the work is relevant. So for, for, for something like that, you could take the framework with the appropriate uh, uh, licenses. That is, it's open source, but, but uh, 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 we, have, we, we, we do want the, the framework to remain and extensions to remain open source. So, so you, you, you can take the, the framework and as long as you have some kind of preferences, you can always translate them in uh, that are translatable to this kind of query language that we use, you can simply take the framework and run it. You take the input query, the user, you, 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 you put it in a middleware between the user's query and the database, and you just run it. Now, the question is, how do you obtain the concept constraints? I, I, I want to claim that even for industry right now or for large entities, to use our framework is easier than what they are doing now. Because they would still need to hire somebody who would look at the user preferences, even the terms and conditions that are being written right now, and translate those to these negative conjunctive queries that we use, negative constraints, right? Some of those, of course, you cannot you cannot 
substitute the entire agreement, arbitrary legal sentences, legal clauses, right? But what when it comes to query to query processing preferences, you can encode some of those even manually to our uh, uh, constraints. Then instead of going all the way from the contract to implementation on code, you go from the contract to a declarative language, and then you execute that uh, in an automatic way. So I hope this, this will find applications, but of course we are not uh, uh, being quiet. We are still uh, 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 working on, on aspects of this. Actually, I've recently been awarded uh, two Horizon projects, Horizon Europe projects. One is RAISE, it's called RAISE. And the other one is called Upcast. RAISE has already start, started. It's, uh, RAISE stands for Research Analysis and Identifier System. And the RACE project is about moving, instead of moving data to algorithms, moving algorithms to data and do this in a privacy-preserving way. So we are doing the, the privacy aspect of the, the let's say, the, the privacy-respecting aspect of collaborative privacy aspect of the project. And the upcast is about to start in, in January. Uh, again, it's a very large consortium, a very large project where, where it's mostly dealing with data marketplaces and, and how do you, and, and these, these ideas are central to that project, how do you negotiate contracts in, in data setting and how do you put them in place in a, 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 using a, an automated, let's say, algorithmic way. This slowly, so it's getting more, more and more traction and, and enables us to extend this in many more directions in the future. So what's been the most interesting and maybe unexpected lesson that you have learned while working on this project and on, on personal consent? So the most interesting uh, lesson is that is that we can always reuse and always connect different areas in ways, in new ways, that uh, we didn't imagine before, right? And and this this is not so much about the work that I have done in this paper. This is about additional work that we we are doing, where we are actually reusing ideas from data integration and knowledge graphs uh, to support this kind of uh, automated contracts, right? And then suddenly the, all these technologies become relevant again, which were hot in early two thousand let's say, query answering using views or other kind of problems. They, they were uh, uh, very relevant in the early 2000s, then kind of died out a little bit. Uh, also, AI techniques that that uh, that uh, are put aside now for the sake of deep learning, right, of approximate things. But right now, uh, uh, you realize that you cannot approximate uh, the enforcement of a contract. You have to do it in a strict way. So again, you have you have to use... Uh, we are we are going back to using some strict knowledge uh, representation and reasoning techniques, right? That do some discrete, some some exact reasoning, because you want to do some kind of exact reasoning on top of these contracts and say what is allowed, what is not allowed, and you cannot simply learn this. Of course, machine learning and deep learning still has its its place, especially in the front end of this work, because you have to learn the preferences of the user. But how to enforce them, you cannot enforce them in an approximate way. So one of the interesting things that come out of this is that I can see that all things becoming new again, and I can see that I can reuse and I, I can connect dots that I didn't know that were there to be connected. In terms of 
of culture, uh, there are some surprises because people always discuss in, when, when new research happens that, that a, a cultural change is difficult, but it's always interesting to see this from a first row, let's say, and, and trying to, to advocate for this and trying to see that you know, a cultural change is, is, is really happening here. In terms of results, of technical results, at, at, uh, they were not really surprises because we really believed that this would be uh, viable and feasible. So there were very uh, positive uh, results that came out, but uh, for I wouldn't call them surprises, per se. Yeah, it's very interesting how things often come full circle, right? <laughs> exactly. I think that's a that's I think in computer science that's a characteristic of of our field that uh, it works like a pendulum. Things things go from one end to the other and back. Let's let's see, for example, what's happening uh, three or four times already with uh, distributed against centralized computing. So I, I guess uh, the next, because I kind of I, I tend to ask this to to most of my uh, interviewees is, and research obviously is uh, non-linear, right? It's a bumpy process. So from the conception of the idea for this to the to the actual final publication, what were the things that you tried on the way that maybe the listeners could benefit benefit from knowing about? The way I worked here is that I I didn't um, abandon the idea when it was first rejected, let's say, and. I put more into it. So I gambled in some sense. So I hired more people and started working more into it. So I prepared papers for down the line and, and extensions to the system. We, we already have a very cool extension to the system that is not published. It's about to be published, uh, which is the following. Con consider uh, some data processing that happens. And with this uh, consent constraints, you answer a query and you get back a data output, let's say, the answer of your query. And this goes to further live on within the data ecosystem, right? We can automatically generate consent constraints, so a new contract for the query output based on the old contract. We call this consent, consent propagation. So, so, so you, you have a consent contract, you do some kind of processing, you generate an output, a data output, and a new consent contract that accompanies the, this data output for future uses. This, this is uh, uh, just one of the ideas that we are working on. Yeah, no, but this was one thing, for example, that we did, we did while the paper got rejected. And instead of, I mean, we still kept on working on the paper. Uh, the paper got rejected for cultural reasons. How are you going to enforce this again? We didn't get disappointed and we continued working on this, extending this. So the way I work is I, I like brainstorming on using the whiteboard with the students, with the postdocs, with colleagues, right? And then taking some homework for everyone, then trying trying this out and coming back and brainstorming again. It's very, very important to, to communicate so so uh, with other people. And, and I should say when when you put extra authors in your papers, the the work gets multiplied, right? So two people, and, and even at an exponential rate. So two people will not just do twice the work. They will do more than twice the, the work. So collaboration is essential. Talking to people about your ideas is essential. Being generous with people's participation and, and attribution of contributions, let's say, is, is important. 
So this way, I think you generate robust and, and a work that, that can stay and generate more potential. So we, we've touched on it at, at many points across the across the course of the, of the chat, but what's next for this line of work? I guess we could maybe just summarise the ones that you've mentioned so far. If there's any additional ones, then... No, um... I think the, the main thing that we want to work with is going forward is yes the front the, the the front end how do you encode the consent constraints the consent propagation how does the consent uh, live in the data ecosystem or this privacy preferences contract how do, how do these get generated and, and live in the data ecosystem uh, but most importantly investigate into more rich language that stand be, between the the user and the service provider the data owner and the service provider uh, uh, richer languages to describe privacy preferences and, and, and consent. In this, in this problem, I see knowledge graphs playing a big role. There are already W3C vocabularies being developed for, for uh, GDPR and, and privacy and consent, and we can reuse and extend those. And moreover, these data integration ideas where you have a vocabulary in the middle and then you have different, different sources mapping to those vocabularies and then you have algorithms in data integration of how you use those settings right this can be reused here because the vocabulary could be like a global vocabulary of contracts or or your global contract let's say and then you have new purposes that come along in the future right and express themselves as parts of the original vocabulary so let's say and in that way you can you can give consent for future processing without having even thought about it, let's say, or you can withdraw consent. Let's say you don't want face recognition to be done on your pictures if you look too old. This is an arbitrary constraint. You might have it. It's your data. I'm not the one to judge about your, your privacy preferences on your data, right? And then you have a new purpose in the future, which is, let, let's say, emotion recognition. But emotion recognition is a type of uh, face recognition. So, if you have if you have done a negative constraint on face recognition, it is implied, it is reasoned automatically by the system that unless the system comes back to you and you allow it, by default, by through reasoning, you can see that you disallow emotion recognition as well. So working in this all these kind of rich languages in between that allow for reasoning, that allow for richer purposes, that allow for withdrawal of consent which is very important, what happens in the future if I want to withdraw my data from a particular service provider, right? That has already obtained my data, my data set, and run away with it. Right? If we all point, point to some centralized knowledge graph, I'm, I might be able to express that and propagate that all the way down to, the, to everybody who's got a hold of my data, even if I don't know who. Nice. I just wanted to kind of pull on the thread a little bit more of how you approach idea generation and your whole process of doing that. So you like to like go brainstorming and kind of collaborate with students and kind of throw some ideas on and then kind of iterate like that. How do you then go about selecting which projects or which ideas to pursue? Like, can you tell me a little bit more about your process there? Okay. So this is not, this is, I'm not the, uh, the, I'm not doing this in a very strategic way in the sense that, oh, this idea is, uh, is going to get me lots of papers. This is important as well, but I want to feel that the it, the idea itself is important uh, and will 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 provide contributions to the uh, to our field, to science, and to 
society in general, right? And like this idea, it can be so small as as looking at it uh, within the relational databases, or it could be as large as expressing your privacy preferences over your personal data on the web, in the wild, right? Which is like a, a contribution to society at the end of the day. So I, I like to, to look at ideas that have potential for greater good, but also, of course, uh, be relevant in what we are living today, right? The Once I get an idea and I think it's cool, I usually go after it. I usually go after it. So sometimes this doesn't pan out. So my, some ideas are better than others, right? But I think once I get, get an idea in my head and I think it's cool, uh, I, I, I talk to my students and my postdocs or the idea might come from them uh, uh, sometimes, right? Uh, and we brainstorm, we get excited, we spend hours in front of the whiteboard, right? That is uh, sometimes we... I still sometimes I still work as a student in the sense that I I don't go home for dinner I just stay and and you know order and take away and let's stay and and and, and work on this this is so exciting the important thing for me is to have fun if you have fun uh, uh, doing that then you should keep on doing that right if you are working on an idea and you hate it but it's hot and you you believe that you should work on it don't do it it usually does not produce so. Yes, have fun. At the end of the day, have fun. What do you think is the biggest challenge in this research area now? I give you, my answer will be very short in that. It will be, it's a cultural challenge. As long as, as people will get the idea of collaborative privacy, I think they are going to jump on it and I'm happy with it. Go and if the listeners like it, go and take it and, and, and play with it and, and, and produce things, right? Uh, I think as, as soon as we realize, oh, We've been doing, it's 2022, 23 almost, and we've been writing contracts in natural language and terms and conditions, these huge ugly documents in natural language, instead of having some natural language default, and then doing so, so much automation afterwards. Like we can do so many things uh, uh, automatically in, in between. So this is a cultural change that, that needs to happen. Once this this ideas start spreading, I think this this will become a, a, a very hot area. What's the one key thing you want the listeners to take away from, from this this show, this episode? Have fun, I think. <laughs> the one key thing is have fun with, uh, uh, if when you have fun, you produce nice, good research. Right? Uh, be meticulous, of course, and do things properly, and have integrity, but also uh, have fun. That's my takeaway message and that's, that's that's a brilliant message so we'll, we'll end it we'll end it on that thanks so much george and um, if the listener if you're more inter- interested in knowing more about george's work put a links to all the uh, all of the things you mentioned um across the show in the show notes and we will see you next time for some more awesome computer science research thank you jack thank you to the listeners as well